talked last week about um, live generously and the possibilities. We talked about the fact that uh, there are so many different possibilities and ways in which God calls us to be generous, which is more than just money. But one of the things that Jesus talked about a lot was, was that, because how important it was. So I'm just going to ask you, just with me, if you would, just to bow your head and, and just pray and say in your hearts, Jesus, we invite you to speak to our hearts. It's our desire to love and express our hearts the way that you expressed yours to others. Speak to us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a business consultant's name and, and author. His name is Stephen Covey. Many of you have heard of Stephen Covey, some of the books he's written, uh, Effective Habits, Highly Effective Habits and things. And he makes a statement. He says, the way we see things, the way we see things is the source of the way we think and the way we act. So the way we perceive our perspective has an influence on the way that we think, and our perspective then determines so often our practice what we do. Does that make sense? Uh, I, I have a number of ways I could have illustrated this, but one that occurred to me that I thought was rather interesting was I um, learned that lesson in a very kind of um, poignant way with a dog that we had a number of years ago. And, and it was a, a, a Sheltie. Anybody familiar with Shelties? They're little kind of collies that love to herd and do all that kind of stuff that collies do around sheeps and things such as that. And our, our dog had a very, very creative name. And the name of the dog was Shelby. Shelby the Sheltie. And so we had that dog when our girls were probably about three years of age through, I think, even through high school. And, and that dog was kind of a friend to them. And they, that dog loved them, loved them more than they loved, you know, me and, 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 and any adults. And so they were, that dog was very, very protective of them. And we live in a hobby farm and we have a couple horses. And so that dog at times would, you know, try and you see this dog barking and running around the horses, kind of corralling them, making sure they're going to be okay. And, and, and they had that ability, even with our girls, they would, you know, they would play a game called Shelby Tag in the basement. And the dog would just kind of go around and kind of round them up and kind of get them kind of where they're supposed to be. That's just kind of the nature of a Sheltie, especially our dog named Shelby. And, and so Shelby, from her perspective, was very concerned about keeping things in order and making sure things were not intruding in ways that could cause harm. So even when a car would come into our driveway, this dog, and let's say this would be often happened, like a, a parent would be bringing their kids over to play with our kids, and that dog would be running around that car, barking like crazy, showing its teeth, and, and you know, the parents did not want to get out of the car. The kids didn't have a problem because they had been there before and had gotten to know that Shelby is this great protective dog. And that bothered me. I didn't like. My perspective of that dog was that it needed to stop it. So that dog would go around and it would be barking and, 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 and causing all kinds of havoc. And I would begin to bark back at it in, in the sense that I would kind of yell at it, right? And, and I'm sure all the dog heard was blah, 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 Shelby. Blah, 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 Shelby. And I would, you know, become a little more, more vociferous and more demonstrative in my actions and dramatic. And, and I'd get wound up. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> and I would be wound up and, and that dog would be going around and I'd be getting, you know, and it's like, who are those two crazies outside? 
as I'm just trying to get this dog to stop until one day I was in a bookstore and I was not looking for a book on training dogs, but I went by a section where there was stuff. And I thought, oh, I'll look at it. And I looked at one book and it specifically was dealing with shelties and collies and that kind of thing. And they said they have a high, you know, they're just kind of highly strung and their nature is such that, that when someone comes onto the property, they're going to just start getting nervous and anxious because it's an intruder. And they're wired to protect and they're wired to corral and to make sure things are safe and in order. And your tendency may want to be to try and stop them by becoming more um, vocally louder and and maybe more demonstrative. And, And they said that's about the worst thing you can do. Because what the dog is hearing is he's as upset as I am. He is going, yes, intruder, you're right. Shelby, there's an intruder. And the dog thinks you're joining them. And it said what you need to do is very calmly just kind of settle down, come over to the dog and say, Shelby, good dog, way to protect, wonderful, you know, that kind of thing. And I tried it. When I got the perspective of how to handle that dog, I began to practice a more quiet, more gentle, and the dog responded. Isn't that amazing? Our perspective on things actually can make a difference in our practice. And so as I began to understand that, the key there was perspective. Now, I want to mess with your mind a little bit when it comes to this whole idea of generosity. So when I began to see things from her perspective, and began to treat it from that, my practice changed. So let me just have you think about this. When, in, when I think of generosity, do you know that a generous life has nothing to do with how much money you have? Nor how great of a family that you may have come from. Nor, and I'm going to use these words, religious. I'm not talking about necessarily relationship, but religious you are. In fact... Studies show again and again, those who give the most, care the most, and actually demonstrate practical, kind-hearted, generous goodness often have the least, have been raised in some of those difficult environments, and many times have very little religious training. Isn't that amazing? And the key difference is perspective. And I think that's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, as he's ending his letter, and he's writing to these people, and he's writing to Timothy specifically, and he's teaching them, and teaching Timothy, here's what you need to do. He wants to end, and he ends the letter here with this, these verses in verse 17 with a command, in verse 18 then with a command, and then in verse 19 he shares kind of the results of that. And so... What he says here is, command those, in verse 17, who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. That's the perspective part. He's, in a sense, saying, when you get the right perspective on things, now listen to this, it will determine your practice. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So we're going to look at the perspective and what perspective we should have because if the perspective is right, there may be then an act of faith, an obedient, courageous step of faith that says, I can step out and I will begin to be generous and good and kind in the same way that God has been to me. 
And then he ends it with this promise. He says, in this way, here's the promise, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. And then I like this, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. It's kind of just saying, you know what? God intended you to live not only for the life in the age to come, but in this very process, if you begin to understand these two commands and you begin to understand this perspective that has an uh, ability to influence your practice, you're going to really begin to experience life. You're going to know what it means to be connected to God in a very, very meaningful way. And so what I want us to do is to first look at these two commands. And the first one is basically in verse 17. He basically is saying, here's the perspective you should have. You should focus on God. That's where your hope should be. And the second thing in verse 18 is then, as a result of the focus on God, if you have the right focus on God, the responding, that perspective will respond in such a way that you will begin to practice freely giving your life to others. So Paul is basically saying, get your perspective right and you will live right. What you see determines what you do and what you'll be. Faith should result in works. The right faith in the right thing. So as you look at that, the first command, just look at that in verse 17, he basically says, command those who are rich in the present world. And he uses that line twice for both groups. So just remember here, he's commanding those who are rich in the present world. And you might be going, well, who's rich here? I mean, I, you know, what's, what scale are we using? And, and Paul's very interesting on that because if you just go back a few verses in verse 6 and 8 of chapter 6, he kind of gives you an idea of what that rich in this present world consists of. The Living Bible says it this way. Verse 6 of chapter 6, do you really, do you want to truly be rich? You already are if you are happy and good. So there you go right there. If you really want to be rich, if you're happy and you're doing well and good in that sense. And he says, after all, here he kind of explains it, we didn't bring any money with us when we came into the world. So the richness here is not so much about money and we can't carry away a single penny when we die. Verse 8, so we should be well satisfied without money if we have enough food and clothing. So to be rich in the present world, when he begins this whole thing, he's commanding us to have a right perspective. He begins by getting our perspective on the fact of what we have. And he says, really, your perspective, if you are in a right relationship and your perspective on God is right, your focus on who God really is is right, and if you are living with enough food and clothing in, this, in, in, in the relationship where you know this God is going to love and care for you, you are rich. You get that? Now, if you just want to kind of put it in relationship to the rest of the world, here in America, obviously, we are one of the wealthiest countries. And we ourselves are personally very wealthy and very rich. So he, he begins and he's saying to us, command, his command is very simple. He says, to those who are rich in this present world, here's my command. Here's something you shouldn't do. And then he says, here's something you should do. What he says you shouldn't do is be arrogant, right? And he says, and, and then he also says, and, and don't put your hope in wealth because it's uncertain. His whole point is this. You have an opportunity to actually put your, the word hope is just confident expectation of what's going to come. You can put your confident expectation in life on God and all who God is 
or you can actually put your expectation on your wealth, and you've got to draw that wealth back. Wealth, he says, is, is arrogance. And what does he mean by arrogance and putting your hope in wealth? Is arrogance is this. The arrogant sense is you are really, if you're not putting it on God, you're putting it on yourself. Because the wealth is what you have through your abilities, your time, maybe what you've been given is that which you've created. It's yours. And so he's basically saying, here's something, if you live with this perspective, you live with the perspective that it's about you and it's about what you have, you're living in an arrogant way. You're living in such a way that you, in a sense, believe that you're the one in control of the wealth. You're the one in control of creating it and making it all happen. You're the one who actually is building this storehouse. And yes, in a sense, you can be doing that. But what he's saying is it's a bad hope. Because you don't have enough. You're limited, you're finite, you don't have the ability to understand. You may think you're pretty good at understanding the fluctuations within our market and our economy, but even the wisest PhDs don't have an idea often what's going on there. You may think you know the best investment. You may think you know good choices. And here's the biggest part of it. You may think you'll continue to be healthy the next day, but you have no idea whether you will. So really, in a sense, whenever you're putting your hope, your confident expectation on you and your wealth, you're putting your, your, your whole expectation on, on, on lack. And when, instead of seeing your life through the surplus or through God, you're seeing your life through your own lack, even though you may have a lot. And it will always impact the way that you live. It will impact the, what you do. And so his point is, in contrast to that, don't do it that way, but do it this way. Command those who are rich in this present world to put their confident expectation and hope in God. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Place your focus on him. Put your hope in there because this is unstable and God is always able to be counted on. It's really that simple until you begin to kind of break it down a little bit further. And what I mean by that is you need to really look at who God is. If you have a a sense of who you are and, and your capabilities, now take a second and look at this command in this way. He's saying, put your hope on God. Your expectation that God loves you, he'll provide for you, and he deeply cares for you, that he will guide you, and that he will work with you. Now, he is not saying in any way here that you should be lazy and you should be passive. That's not at all what he's saying. He's basically saying, begin to view your life, your health, your decisions, all the things that you have in your life with God as being your partner. Okay? But you need to know who your partner is, right? If you're going to be investing, it's kind of good to know who that partner is. And so he says that's what you want to put your focus on. And so as I was thinking about this and in, in thinking about the perspective, just imagine if you could get in your head on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, who really your partner God is in this life. He's given you gifts, he's given you abilities, he's given you all those things that he wants you to do the best with them that you can. He loves the fact that you excel in that. He has no problem with the creation of wealth. He has no problem with any of these things that, that, that so often we think are bad. He says the love of money, it's putting yourself in this position that somehow that's going to keep you secure, somehow that's going to provide for you, somehow that's going to give you life. Because you really think about it, the things of life, the deepest desires in life, your sense of significance, your sense of purpose, your sense of, of what it means, you know, Know, people will say, you know, money can't buy love, right? Well, it really can't. 
Some of those deepest needs, money doesn't provide for it. So he says, you want to partner up with God. And if you could live with a sense of who God is, we are told again and again and again throughout the Bible some things about God. So I want to just enlarge your focus on who your partner is for a minute. Change your perspective. I could go through a bunch of these, but we're told again and again, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. When you begin to think about creators of wealth, like Steve Jobs or Warren Buffett or Lori Grenier or, or the Oprah Winfrey's or Mark Zuckerberg, they don't compare to the maker of the heaven and earth who creates all wealth. We're told in Psalm 115, may you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121, these are just psalms. My help comes from the Lord. He always had this perspective, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 124.8, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and any other place, the one who creates it all, the one who, all this stuff, the creator of all the wealth of the universe is our God. Last week, I, on Sunday, um, Grace was doing something, so I decided I'm going to watch Prime TV, I'm going to watch a movie, Interstellar, because those are not kind of the ones that she likes. But, you know, it's one of these, I think it's a little sci-fi kind of thing, and, and, it, and, and what it is, anybody seen that movie? Well, it's this movie where he, they're living on Earth, and Earth is being depleted of its resources. We basically destroyed it, and gases are killing it, and they're doing all that they can to get a group of people off to find another place that's like Earth so that they, they can live. And I remember at one point in the movie, they're talking about all these different statistics as they're looking for a place for this new civilization, this new Earth to be. They, they almost say, I think at one point they said, as if someone created the earth um, for life. And I'm going, well, yeah. And it reminded me of a, of a guy named William Dembski. He was, used to be at Baylor, and he wrote a book called Intelligent Design, and there's all kinds of people and thoughts around this. But he basically was seeking to prove the creator through what is called a complex, specific intelligence using empirical um, data to bring it together to show you that, you know, there had to be an intelligent designer. And he's got a book called Intelligent Design. And, and Dembski writes in it, when you contemplate the universe, now we're talking about the creator of heaven and earth. He's your partner, okay? Think about it. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He says, when you contemplate the universe, it's fair to say a maker of heaven and earth left nothing to chance. The slant of the earth, for example, tilted at the angle of 23 degrees produces our season. Scientists tell us that the earth had not been tilted exactly as it is. Vapors from the oceans would move both north and south, piling up continents of ice. If the moon were only 50,000 miles away from the earth instead of 200,000, the tides might be so enormous that all the continents would be submerged in water and all the mountains would be eroded. If the crust of the earth, catch this, had been only 10 feet thicker, right? There would be no oxygen, and without it, all animal life would die. Had the oceans been just a few feet deeper, now we're talking just a few feet deeper, let's say about this much, carbon dioxide and oxygen would have been absorbed and no vegetable life would exist. The earth's weight has been estimated at 6 sextillion tons. That's a 6 with 21 zeros. Yet it is perfectly balanced and turns easily on its axis. It revolves daily at the rate of more than 1,000 miles per hour or 25,000 miles each day. And this adds up to 9 million miles a year as it tilts on its axis and turns. 
Considering the tremendous weight of a six sextillion tons rolling at a, this fantastic speed around an invisible axis. So get this huge thing, heavy, spinning miles and miles. It's held in place by this unseen bonds, uh, uh, bands of gravitation. He says the words of Job 26.7 take unparalleled significance. Job writes, he poised the earth on nothingness. And then he just, he just he goes on. Consider the sun and its distance and how much... And I could read some more. And I just thought, isn't it amazing? This is the person that he says, put your focus on. He's the one who put this whole earth together. And I'm watching that film and they're giving stats even in that film. And I'm thinking to myself, it is amazing because you can't even find out in our solar system something that could that allow life to inhabit the way it is. And if he is the creator with that incredible ability to create... Why would you want to partner with just yourself? Why would you even want to think that you're partnering with God, but you're really, be honest with yourself, you're not? Why would you want to look at all the needs of the world through your lack? What if you began to live in such a way, and I'm not talking about irresponsibly, that's not what the Word of God says, we'll talk about that more in some weeks to come, but what if you were to take all the gifts, all your abilities, and say, God, I'm going to partner with you, and God, when I walk through this life, I'm commanded to keep my eye in perspective on you, and isn't it interesting, the next thing he says, he doesn't say, I, he doesn't say I'm, I'm asking you to consider to do this. He basically says, when, when, when you put your hope on God, when you partner with him, and you begin to realize all that he has, and I've got a whole bunch of notes here on a whole bunch of other things we're not even get into. But if you get your mind around the fact that this God, who is not only the maker, creator, but he even says in other places that he, the, the, the earth is the Lord's, that everything in it, he owns it all. So he doesn't have a problem redistributing it. If you could get your mind around, if I could get my mind around this, so I'm just, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about us. If we get our mind around the fact that this God has all this and we began to live with this sense of non-anxiousness that God loves us and, and as we're living a responsible um, life before God, seeking to do what we can with the gifts he's given us, being wise with how we live, when we see needs, when we see something and the Spirit of God prompts us, we should be able to go, God, if you're prompting me, then you're going to provide right? And God, if you are good to me, the command is, then be good to someone else. It doesn't say if they're nice to you, or you know, they smiled at you today at work, or, or they, they're the ones who care. He says, just to be good. Begin to start sharing, and, and begin to start living this way. And he doesn't say, I can ask you to consider this. Would you guys think about this? He says, the command is, if your focus is on God, and you know who your partner is, then partner with them and become I look at it this way, a, a distribution center of his goodness and blessing and wealth. So when I was thinking about it, we're as a church, a, a larger distribution center. But you know what? We're also individual local distribution centers of blessing. 
We are able to live where God calls us, where our feet walk, and where we move and where we are at. We have the ability to know this God as we keep our focus on this God who has all the supply, not looking through our lack, but looking at what he has. And when God prompts us or we see a need and we feel the sense that God is calling us to act into it, we have the ability to be local distribution centers of his goodness, of his generosity. I think that's how he created us. We get to be partners like that. I was thinking about this, and uh, Mike, why don't you come up? Because you know what? I'm going to start getting into something else I shouldn't. Um, I want Mike to share something, because I think it's really, really important. It was really helpful for me. And that is when I began to understand this perspective, which I'm still seeking to live out. Paul says, I learned contentment. I learned this life. We're learning this life. Hopefully, we're each taking a step further. Remember I said last week, the Grinch, where he said, you know, I wasn't sure about the Grinch that starts out. His head wasn't screwed on right, and his shoes were maybe too tight. But when you consider it all, I think he says, I think it was that his heart was two sizes too small, right? And we've been talking about how do we just make our heart a little bigger, a little more generous? How do we begin to start seeing ourselves as a distribution center? I've asked Mike to share a, a thing called a generosity ladder because it kind of helps you, and I think it's real practical to kind of say, where might I be in this thing? I'll let you do, Mike, because I'll start talking about your stuff. Sorry. <laughs> Got to love the passion there and the efficiency of that book, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Kevin asked me to share about a thing called the generosity ladder, and you'll see um, the slide up there. We realize that's too small for you to read. We have handouts of that available at the table by the video. Uh, At the end, if you would like to grab one of those, we will give you bigger pictures of those as I talk through. We reworked it. I just wanted to show it to you because um, I get it that it's not a ladder. That's not my fault. It doesn't look like a ladder. I didn't design it. I'm just reproducing something somebody else did. But Generous Church is a group that does this and, and sets us apart and says, how can we be generous as Christians? And so, because um, as you've heard Kevin talk about and throughout, you know, maybe you know, the Bible has over 2,000 verses on money and poverty. Um, Kevin last week talked about 15% of the time Jesus preached, he was preaching about money. It's a big deal, a generosity. And there's, so all the Generous Church did is sat down and said, here's a generosity ladder that doesn't really look like a ladder, and you can look at it, so... Uh, as we get started, I just want to give you a couple cautions. One, the, the ladder doesn't have to be linear. Sometimes you can jump up, jump down. Sometimes you're at one point with one thing and another point at another thing. And you, you can be really generous with this, but not as generous with that. Um, and it's easiest to understand in light of money, and that's the filter I'm going to use today. But you can view that with time and energy and passions, anything that we've talked about as well. Um, and so this is a resource for you, hopefully. Um, it's not a meant to judge that, hey, I'm doing pretty well and you know, you're not as generous as I am or any of those kind of things. As well as the church, we're not evaluating your giving or any of those kind of things as much as we are saying. God calls us to be generous. What's the picture? And here's a picture of an illustration of what to, how that might work in some self-evaluation piece. So if we can go to the first slide with the, that we can actually read. Um, so the first step on the ladder is non-generous. And basically, I can't be generous at this time. Now, some of us are non-generous because we weren't taught that. Some of us, this is the first time anybody has ever talked to us about being generous. Uh, It could be a new thing for us, never thought it was that important. Or I think a lot of people get stuck on, well, wait a minute, I did this all. I raised this money. I made this money. It was my energy and time. Why should I give that to somebody else? Or the um, one of the things that sticks me every once in a while is the opportunity cost option of this. Um, a couple of years ago, we, um, 
uh, I have airline miles, and we flew in my sister-in-law for a family event, which was the right thing to do. We, she hadn't been here in a while. We had some available miles. Except what happens is once I use those miles, I don't have those miles to use for me anymore. So it's the right thing to do. It's generous. And next, yep, I go, wait a minute. That's still a cost. And it doesn't help. My wife calls them free miles. And I go, well, they're not really free. They, they, you know, it saves us money over here. So sometimes that's where we get stuck in that non-generosity, just simply because of our perspectives and our backgrounds. And that slides right into the next uh, slide, number two, is self-promotional. How will this help me? Uh, the Bible has lots to say about that. Uh, and I'm, I give them to others to see so they can see what I did. And are they impressed? Uh, a couple years ago when we were raising money for the parking lot, um, we broke down um, each spot into how much money per spot we had to pay. And there was plenty of joking about, well, if I give this or buy a spot, do I get to choose which one I have? Do I get to put my name on it? That's the kind of thing here. You'll notice new parking lot, no names, no signs, no reservations. So we uh, killed that early. But uh, the third one is self-appeasing. And these, the next couple are tricky for me because God tells us to do things because they're good or God tells us to do things because that will bring joy. But we're really talking about self-appeasing is, will that make me feel good as the goal? And so a lot of times as we talk about kingdom value later, um, it really is about being good and making me feel joy. But it's not me as the center of that. Because as soon as I give, basically to make me feel joy or feel good, that then it comes me and not about God and following his generosity. And several, lots of us maybe are emotional in our response. There are lots of times at church we say, I think one of the best examples is Teen Challenge. They get up here, they tell some great stories, they're passionate, and emotionally, I just want to give to them. Well, yes, that's generosity, but is it generosity just because it makes you feel good about giving is the real question. Uh, it slides right into the next one, and I think these two are the easiest ones. Doing good. I will have to do good. So, yeah, I can do that because it's good. Um, and March is food shelf month, food drive. And so I will go to the store and think, you know what, March is food shelf. That's a good thing for me to do. I should buy some food for that. Except the rest of the year I'm going, yeah, I'm not that good, apparently, or it isn't a good thing to do in April because nobody's telling me, hey, you should do this in March. So... Um, and then the next one is safe. I can give what I can. I had a volunteer once who said he pays his bills, and then he writes a check to the church for his, his donation to the church, and he sticks it on the refrigerator with a magnet. And at the end of the month, if he still has that money, money in his account, then he gives it to the church. This is not a safe, that's a safe strategy for giving. Once I've taken care of all my needs, I'll see what's left. I'll give out of excess. And I think that's sometimes just as easy to do, if not easier, when you got lots of money, because you, the, the numbers are bigger. And so um, sometimes it's harder to give large, generous number of things because the numbers are bigger. So sometimes we give because it's safe. Uh, number six is the percentage, is really my tithe. Uh, historically, a tithe means 10%. It's the idea of um, God wants us to give our first fruits. It was an agricultural community that the Bible was written to. And so it's the first fruits or the best animal, the best of your what you've made. Give that first 10% to, to uh, church. And so as much as I'm a fan of tithing, I think it makes a commitment. It sometimes continues to become kind of a transactional. Uh, I check it off my list rather than a transformational giving. Because I think God talks about tithe in that um, that's a minimum goal for us to get and maintain that. And then if we use that excuse for, well, I tithed, so the rest is mine. 
I, I think there's a challenge there that I would like to encourage you to think through. Um, the next one, sacrificial. Uh, basically, the attitude there is to sacrifice is gain. Um, for those who weren't here last week, um, we had an interview with Phil Linskog, who's one of our youth pastors. He gave his cousin a kidney. There's nothing not sacrificial about that. Now, Phil can feel good about that, or he's doing a good thing, but at some level, it's Phil coming and saying, I'm giving you my kidney because I can. And, you know, not because it, it, it might feel good. It didn't feel good to him at the time, I'm sure, but now it feels good. Um, and so you can deal with that. And basically, when you look at sacrificial, the verse I love is Mark 10, 45, and in this is a new living. For even I, the Son of Man, came here, to, here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we start to see that sacrificial giving of Jesus dying and God sending his son to die for us that we can model, and that becomes the, that moves it away from what I'm doing with my money and generosity and time and to what God is calling me to do. And, and then the kingdom view is exactly what Kevin was just talking about, is that whole idea of I have eternal focus on my giving, and I'm just a distribution center. Um, for my, um, we prepared this separately, and my thought was, I mean, if God, everything that God gives you is a blessing to you, and then you give it to somebody else, all you're doing is passing that blessing on. And so you'll hear us say as a staff a lot, um, the end of the year, likely we'll stand up here, our end of the budget year is in June, we'll stand up here and say, hey, we're a little behind in our budget. Hopefully we're a lot ahead in our budget. That would be great. But assuming we're a little behind in our budget, we will say, um, but we want you to give what God is leading you to give in response to how he has blessed you. And that is really that kingdom view and that driving force that says, I'm going to give because it's all God's, and I understand that, and it's not about me, where those first steps of that um, generosity ladder are really about, oh, it's about me, and what can I slice off of me to give to somebody else as, as kind of a sacrifice or a blessing or whatever, versus a kingdom view of, or sacrificial giving and what that is. And so um, Kevin talks about big hearts, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. And our, basically our mission is to take the next step to know, follow, and become like Jesus. And that's all we're asking is, are you doing, taking that next step with your generosity? We do have some resources. We don't want you to just walk away thinking, yeah, I should do some of this. Um, one thing that's brand new from Thrivent Financial is your new money mindset. It just is about the mentality of giving and money and how do you see that. Thrivent was generous. They, we have a coupon for a discounted price of $5. The first service, I said it was $5 off, and I was corrected. It's $5 plus shipping handling. But these are available at the table as well. We'd love for you to pick one of those up. Thanks. Well, we've tried to get a lot in the service with all the communion and everything, and I really, I'm going to, we're over, and I'm going to kind of beg your, your graciousness because um, I would love for you to just kind of let God speak to you about where am I in this whole thing? What does my heart look like? And, and also just to listen to this um, beautiful song.